This morning's scripture reading is out of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, and we'll be reading verses 29 through 34. You can follow along in your own Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Again, this is Matthew, chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they had heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want, to do? What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This has been the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My name is John Glendening. I'm one of the elders here. Um, During this Advent season, we've been going through uh, different names of Jesus that he was called during his earthly ministry. Last week, Emmanuel was the, the topic Randy covered for us. And if you were expecting him to go to the next topic, which is the son of David, Well, too bad for you, I'm here. But uh, Jesus is called the Son of David on several occasions during his ministry. Now, I'll be honest with you, when this topic first came up, I scratched my head a little bit. Of course, I knew it had been used, but what did it mean? And what was the purpose? What was the point of that? And so uh, in this reading, in Matthew, there is one example. Jesus is walking along, and these blind men hear about this Jesus, and they hear that he's coming past, and they start, and it, it says in um, here that they shouted, and, and uh, Christian read it, that, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. But really, what they said was, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. That's, and, and then the crowds told them to quiet down, keep, keep quiet, don't speak so loud. So it, They shouted all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and had mercy on them. But what's the point of the word Son of David? Well, the first thing is there's several different Sons of David. First, David himself, by the way, just for a little review of biblical history, David was the first king, I'm sorry, the second king of Israel. And he led Jesus into their, led Israel into their glory years. He consolidated the kingdom and he reigned over them. And he was really the most magnificent king that Israel had. That, uh, and this occurred uh, somewhere around 800 BC. And David had, uh, was king for about 40 years. And he lived and he was just renowned. He was like the George Washington of Israel, if you will. He was the one everyone went back to, and he was just the one that they uh, had faith in, that he was the one that would redeem and lead Israel. Now, David had several sons. One of them was Solomon, who was the next king in line. And Solomon was a good guy, and he ran, uh, led Israel for 40 years as well. And he was renowned as the smartest guy in the world. And he did a good job until the end of his life when he didn't do a good job. 
But that was his son. Absalom was another son who, oh, by the way, decided he would take the kingdom from, Israel, from uh, Solomon. Nathan, Adonijah, and so on. He had sons. The word son of David could also be described as a grandson. Matthew and Luke have the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Genealogy, you know, we don't do it so much. It doesn't really matter to you that my father was Highlands, and his father before him was John Torrens. And I don't have a clue who was before him, but I'm sure there was someone. Um, it, but in the time of Israel, they would want to know, where did this person come from? What tribe? Paul himself says, trying to describe how, how important a person he is, he says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. He knew exactly where he had come from. And Matthew and Luke record this genealogy of Jesus, which lists a record of all of David's of many of David's sons down through the years from the time of David through the, the various sons and sons and grandsons and great-grandsons and great-greats and great-great-greats and, and so on and forth all the way down to Mary and to Joseph. But there was another one who was promised to David, who was special and unique, who bore the title the son of David. Matthew 1.1 says the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what happened was that David during a period of his life had grown the kingdom to a certain place where he had created a nice place for himself, built a nice house. And he says he's sitting there kind of feeling guilt. He's saying, you know, I'm in this really great place. But the Ark of the Covenant the tabernacle, it's sitting outside in a tent, literally a tent. I want to build a great building. And, and God says, no, you've shed a lot of blood in your time in consolidating and bringing together the kingdom. You'll not do it, but your son will. But this was, there was a prophecy, there will be another son that will come. When your days are complete, Nathan the prophet says to David in 2 Samuel 7, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. It's a promise of God. It will happen. This is what Randy talked about last week. Get the tape. We don't do tapes anymore, right? Get the MP3. Uh, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That was going to be David's son, the son, the one who would come and whose kingdom would last forever, who would live forever, who would lead um, the people of Israel. So these blind men who are shouting like crazy madmen, well, no, they're crazy blind men on the side of the road, they want Jesus to give them their sight. Why? Because that's what the son of David would do. He would make all things right. He would make all things perfect. He would bring peace and harmony and, and uh, just good times for all. It would be perfection. And we sung about those in Tyson's ministry this morning. So the, the theme of the future king of Israel will be a son of David occurs throughout the Old Testament. It started with this promise. Thoughts referred to over and over through books a part of the Old Testament called the prophets, uh, Ezekiel and others ones. 
Zechariah, Micah, and Hosea, and numerous other prophecies about this one who would come, this one who would make all things right, this one who would be the second David, if you will. One in particular that I think is really worthwhile, it's a long passage, but I think it's really helpful to understand what was in the mind of the Jewish people when Jesus came. What was in the mind of these blind guys who want to see? And this is partially what they remembered. In Ezekiel 34, this is God speaking, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. Now David had already died at this point, but it was David's son. Let me think, the son of David. My servant David, and he will tend them, and he will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord God, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. I will make them in the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season there will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in the land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild beasts, wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. They will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. That's what the son of David would bring. That's what the Messiah would bring into existence. They will not be afraid any longer. What a wonderful time that people would look forward to. By the way, it's still a common hope among Jews today, right now. There's a congregation of people here called Chabad, uh, or uh, Hasidic Jews, and and here's something from their website. One of the principles of the Jewish faith enumerated by by Maimonides is that one day there there will arise a dynamic Jewish leader, a direct descendant of the Davidic dynasty, who will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and gather Jews from all over the world and bring them back to the land of Israel. All the nations of the world will recognize Moshiach to be a world leader and will accept his dominion. In the messianic era, there will be world peace, no more wars nor famine, and in general, a high standard of living. All mankind will worship one God and will have a more spiritual and moral way of life. The Jewish nation will be preoccupied with learning Torah and fathoming its secret. The coming of Moshiach will complete God's purpose in creation for man to make an abode for God in the lower worlds, that is to reveal the inherent spirituality in the material world. Yesterday, these people gathered, and this is one of their hopes to this day, right now. We know, of course, that that son of man, that son of David came. The blind men on the road coming from Jericho, they saw him. 2,000 years ago. But this is the context that the people were thinking about. This is what's going to come. And so you can understand this idea and concept of Messiah. Messiah will make all things right. Messiah will fix it. Messiah will give us our land back. Messiah will get rid of the Romans. Messiah will bring prosperity. Messiah will allow us to live in peace 
And we will be, not be afraid any longer, as Ezekiel prophesies. This was the context. Messiah was coming who would rule Israel and bring peace and prosperity. The, um, the Pharisees knew that Messiah would be the son of David. Uh, Jesus went to them and, and talked to them, and while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, who do you th what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David, the son of David. In the case of the blind men, they knew about this. Again, from the youngest to the oldest in the Jewish faith, they were very well trained. They were very well um, raised. They um, knew what Messiah would do. They would, he would fix all things. Son of David, have mercy on me. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus says, I want to see. And so Jesus healed them. During Jesus' lifetime, at the, just before the last week of his life, there's what's called Palm Sunday. They didn't call it then. We call it that now. It was called the triumphal entry, where Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for this final week of his earthly uh, ministry before he was crucified. He's walking through a town called uh, Bethphage, and he tells his disciples to go ahead and basically commandeer a small donkey, a colt, and bring it to him so he could walk up. It's very hilly, by the way. There, Jan and I have been there. You go up a hill, you get to the top of a hill, and then you go down this hill. It's, it's, so bring a colt. But there's another reason Jesus did it, because there's a prophecy that there would be one who would come to, um, to uh, Israel sitting on a colt, on a, on a donkey, and uh, walking along. So the People recognized the Psalms, this uh, prophecy, and they put palm branches out on the road. They put their cloaks out on the road so that his way was prepared to come. And they shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They were excited. This was the, the Messiah. This was Moshiach. This was the one who was going to make all things right. This is the one. Even about a month and a half later, even at just before our Lord goes back to, to heaven and his ascends from the Mount of Olives, his disciples ask him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still waiting for that to happen. It was so ingrained in their head of what it would be. And Jesus replies, says, no, you don't know the times, the epics, that's reserved to the Father. But you are going to be filled with the Spirit, and you are going to witness for me, and you are going to be my witnesses to tell people what I've done. And that's what they did. So what do we learn from this? I thought that uh, Jesus, the son of David, would create a kingdom. Well, there's this concept in, in Scripture where God provides previews of coming attractions. That the reality is so great and so magnificent and so huge, but it's not quite there. But he gives a picture, and that's what the picture of Jesus' time on life, earth was like. That he would heal these people. That he would um, speak God's truth. That within his circle there was uh, safety and there was security, but it wasn't for the world yet. Um, in the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer, we're told to ask that God's kingdom would come 
that his will would be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done, we're told. And yet, it's not. It's not here. And yet, it is. Right now, the kingdom of God does exist. It's made up by those that, that recognize and submit to his reality. The, the kingdom of God is the rule of an eternal, sovereign God over all the universe. The kingdom of God is a spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to God's authority. For we, us who are believers, the kingdom of God is real and it's here now, but not yet visible. This is one of the problems we as humans have, you see. We can't see it with our eyes. We don't think it's real. If we can't sense it, well, it must be fake. But I'd suggest to you there are realities beyond what we can see. There is a reality that's beyond what the day in, day out is, that we live in, that we exist in, and that is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is has a king, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the son of David, the one who is the son of God. He's the one we're subject to. He's the one that we have to obey. He's the one who should rule and reign in our lives. Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of God. He is sovereign. And if we have placed our faith in him as our savior, we also need to submit to him as our Lord. Just by quick review, what does it mean to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I'd suggest this, that the first thing comes from understanding who God is. God is pure and perfect and absolutely holy. We don't understand that concept because we're used to 99.4% pure. We're used to like almost good, but not quite there. Or good enough, Cub Scout basketball games, right? Close enough. Good enough, good enough for government work. Sorry if there's any government workers here. But uh, close enough and, and, and good enough. But God is not like that. He is holy and pure and perfect. He doesn't grade on a scale. And you know, honestly, and I've said this before, but forgive me for repeating myself. I'm an old man. I get to do that. Um, we want God to be that way. In our inner core, we want God to be pure, to be totally equitable, to be totally fair, to be totally just. We don't want him to let only those guys with really cool beards into heaven. And everyone else, well, you got to be judged. No, everyone is going to be judged. And the scale is absolute purity and perfection. And if you're honest with yourself, you're just like me, where we fail in many ways. Often we don't do the things we should, and we do the things we ought not to. We fail in many ways, so we can't come into God's presence. So what is God to do? Well, he sent someone to take our penalty, to take the wrath and the punishment, the judgment that was due to us. As it says in Isaiah, it fell on him. And so we place our faith and trust, not that, hey, I'm going to, God's going to love me more because I've gone to church and I've gone to, I've done this and I do that and I do the other thing and I try not to swear too much and I, I don't do this and I don't do that. It's not it. God knows we do all those things and he still loves us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died 
for us. And so we have placed our faith and trust in him that there is no other way to come to heaven but by him. And so if we've placed our faith and trust in him for our eternal salvation, we also ought to give him our loyalty, our obedience as our king, the king of, of heaven, the kingdom, king of the king of heaven, as the son of David, as our Lord. One of the problems we uh, have living here in America at this time is we don't understand really what true kingship is like. Used to be that you'd live three, four hundred years ago, you'd live in an area and this guy would be the king. And he could do no wrong. He was you, your culture, your country. That was the country, the country you would look at. I'm sorry, that person represented the country you were at. And they could do no wrong. And they were absolute. And their judgments were certain. And there was absolutely no, uh, there was no, there was no, you weren't going to vote that scoundrel out to get another scoundrel. Let me put it that way. They were absolute. And so here in the U.S., of course, we got rid of that in 1776, or actually 1773, we threw the king's tea in the Boston Harbor and, and all the rest, and you know the rest of the story. But what if, instead of that king being a scoundrel like the ones we have right now, what if he were absolutely pure and perfect and had nothing but the best intents for those who were his subjects? What if that king truly did lead that country in a place where that country would be, would be protected, where the people could live in safety, where the people would not be afraid. What if he provided for them so that no one went hungry, so that they all had something to eat, so that they all had a safe place to live? What if that kingdom king really took care of his people? It would be actually a pretty good place to live if that could occur. Well, the reality is, that it does occur. It occurs in the kingdom of heaven. And we know this because that king died for us. He gave his life for us. He, he gave himself so that we might live and so we can follow him and, and obey him. Let me just reread this passage from Ezekiel because it's so cool. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield the fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in the land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who have enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety. No one will make them afraid. We have such a king. We have this king who can care for us, who can heal our diseases, who can take care of our blindness, who will give us mercy. This is our king. So what is the reality of this in our lives then? Can't see the kingdom of heaven except for the people that are living in it. What does it mean for the reality of our lives? Well, first, the reality is that if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And that's something we can rejoice in. I'll tell you, you know, if you follow the news and you see what's going on, it truly is a domain of darkness that we live in. And we live in the good part of the neighborhood, let me tell you that. Down here in the southeast, there's still a remnant of those that believe in God's faith. But there's a lot of mean, nasty, ugly places, not just here in the U.S., but 
overseas and in a lot of different places. Um, as one looks over the news each day, the domain of darkness is very clear. There's evil all around. We've been preserved by a lot of it here in Myrtle Beach, but it's very much here. So we can rejoice in that. We've been transferred into his, the kingdom of God's dear son, the son of David. While we're in this world, we are not in our home country. We are aliens. We are strangers. And so we don't necessarily value the same things. Here in this country, what's valued? Success, for one thing. Attention. Wealth. Popularity. I mean, if, uh, if you don't at least have, I don't know, Randy, how many Instagram followers do you have? If, not enough. <laughs> if you don't have enough, well, then forget about it. Who are you? Popularity, pleasure, or in the words of a recent song I heard, in the words of Pink Floyd, comfortably numb. What's our values? Well, in the words of an eminent theologian, Justin Kramer in the back, Jesus Christ should be preeminent in our lives, not simply prominent. That he should be something we think about every day, every hour. What would Christ have me to do? It's, we're, we are far away from our home country here. We are just passing through. We are aliens. We are strangers. And the things we see, as I said, your eyes, they're just your lying eyes. They're not showing you what the reality is like. And the reality is that we are part of a kingdom with the king of heaven, with the, king, with the son of, of David, the son of God, who wants to give us prosperity in our lives if we'd only go after it, if it's his prosperity. Our minds must be transformed, not focused on this world's values of success, popularity, things. Our goals are different. What's one of the goals in this world? You only live once, because truly, most of the people in this world will only live once. So grab all the gusto you can. What's our value? Well, I, I couldn't do any better than Paul says. His value was that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection and know the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death. Now, those last two ones aren't as popular as the first two, but they're still a reality, but that's a subject of another sermon. But our, our values should be for Christ. Again, as, as Justin said, he, Jesus Christ his work, his world, his things that he wants us, his ministry needs to be preeminent in our life, and not just prominent. Our language should be different. Colossians 4, 6 says that our speech must always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Ephesians 4, 29, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. This is what the king tells us to do. But if there is a good word for edification according to the need of the moment, not the same word all the time, but for whatever need is there at that moment, say that so that it will give grace to those who hear. Our destiny is different. Um, we know where we go at the end of the time. We know that when it's time, it is appointed unto man once to die, it says in Hebrews. But after this comes the judgment, we know those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know 
where we are going and what is going to happen. We know this. But there's others who aren't. I know a person who's in the medical field. And this person has had situations where they've had to sit at the bedside of a patient and say that they don't have long to live. And the history of this person, this patient, indicates that they are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're not going to live long. What do you say? How much, how grim is that? So I think that the reality that we have is to know that we know our sins have been forgiven, that we've been justified, that would justified is this Greek legal word that says that you've been declared innocent. You've come to the end of the trial. I messed this up, I messed this up, I messed this up, I messed this up, I messed this up. And at the end of the trial, Jesus says, yeah, you're right. But all those penalties were placed on my son. He paid this penalty. It's already done. You are innocent. Finally, we should want what the king wants. We want, as it says in the Lord's Prayer, his will, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Often we have our own needs and wants and desires. And, you know, we, and hey, I, I do this, you know, you should really get a more holy preacher like Randy or someone, I suppose. But uh, I, I, God, I've thought about this, and I know a great plan. And I, I really kind of thought of all the pieces and parts, and, and here's the plan what you should do. This is how things should happen. I need you to, and then this will do this, and everyone will live happily ever after. Wouldn't this be a great idea? And bring it on. But that's not the way it works. Our king is, I hate to break it to us, he's way smarter than us. He knows way more than we do. And he knows not only what we think we want, but what we really do. He knows the desires of our heart. He knows the things that are deep, what we really want to have. And he, as our loving heavenly father, and by the way, that's really a way to keep thinking about God. He is our heavenly father. Father who wants nothing but the best for us and wants to give it to us. And we know what's best for us. God, do this, do this, do this. That's the best thing. No. Sometimes, but not always. <coughs> he knows what's best. And so we need to trust in him and pray that his will would be done. So finally, with all the focus on the baby in the manger at this time, I'd suggest to you, take small moment to think about the king of kings the son of david the lord of lords the one who is supreme he should be preeminent in our lives he should be the thing that regulates what we do and how we think and how we talk are there bad circumstances absolutely let god know we can pray anything to god he's our father we can come into his presence and bang on the door and interrupt him and say this is a problem. It needs to get fixed and then trust on him to fix it. We should desire his will to be done and we should seek to serve and obey him, our king, in all that we say and do. That's my king. Let's just close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is God and yet put it aside 
came to earth and lived and dwelt among us, the one who experienced every temptation, every difficulty, every problem, every difficulty that we have, everything that we've encountered, he did as well. We thank you that he went to the cross of Calvary to die for us. We thank you that we can live in him. We thank you that we can be part of the kingdom of heaven, that we can have hope in heaven, that we, our destiny is secure. We thank you that you do pour blessings in our lives so that we can experience your perfection here on earth. I pray, Lord, for those that are going through difficult times now here. I'm sure there are several. I pray, Lord, that you, our Heavenly Father, our King, that you would have mercy on them and provide a special touch of healing to them this day. We again thank you and we pray, pray this in your Son's name. Amen.